Hello, this is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Donald D. Hoffman, who is a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine. His writing has appeared in Scientific American and Edge, and his work has been featured in The Atlantic, Wired, and Quanta. He resides in Irvine, California, so be sure to check out his latest book, The Case Against Reality, available just about everywhere. So, what is real, and how does that help answer the hard question of consciousness? Well, let's hear from Dr. Hoffman. Dr. Hoffman, thank you so much for joining me here on the Consciousness Podcast. It's a real honor to talk to you. You came highly recommended, so I'm I'm really uh, grateful for you to take your time and talk to me today about consciousness. Thank you very much, Stuart. Thank you for your kind invitation. Well, awesome. Awesome. So, you know, a lot of this is based on your book, The Case Against Reality, um, which is uh, a great book uh, for me, you know, not the easiest read in the world. I think some of your concepts are really tough to to, to wrap uh, a layman's brain around, but mm-hmm. uh, I do want to dig into a little bit and just see, and I guess we'll start with, I think, maybe a central point in the book, which is that we humans, and when we study these things and think about them, have a false assumption out there that you take head on. And that assumption is that we see reality as it is. And and you say that, that that's wrong. And so maybe you could kind of start us off with why why you think that. And if that's the case, then then what is real out there? Right. So So most of us, if we look at, say, you know, your dinner table and you see a fork, and everybody else at the dinner table looks and they would say, yeah, I see a fork. We all assume that uh, we're all seeing reality as it is, that there really is a fork. It, it looks silver. It has four, four tines on it. It has a particular position on the table and so forth. And that that's, you know, we don't think it's all of the truth because, you know, physicists tell us that it's mostly empty space and there's atoms and particles zipping around in, at high speeds that we don't see. But, but we do think that the part that we do see is true. And we're seeing, you know, that even our perceptions of space and time um, and physical objects within space and time is to a first approximation, a true description of what really would exist, um, even if no one was around. And we, we believe, for example, that the moon would be there even if no one looked. Mm-hmm. And so one argument that's often given for that idea is an evolutionary argument that um, yeah. the argument goes that uh, those of our ancestors who saw reality more accurately had a competitive advantage over those who saw it less accurately in the big actions of life, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. And and as a result, they were more likely to pass on their genes, which coded for more accurate perceptions. And so after thousands of generations of that, we can be quite confident that we're the offspring of those who saw more accurately. So, so, So the idea is that evolution would shape us to see those aspects of objective reality that we need to survive in our niche. So we don't see all of objective reality, of course, but we do see some aspects of objective reality, namely those that allow us to survive in our niche. That's mm. the standard story from evolution. It turns yeah. out it gets evolution completely wrong. So we don't have <laughs> to guess what evolutionary theory says. It's now a mathematically precise theory. Uh, there's evolution, but natural selection has been turned into a mathematical theory called evolutionary game theory. There's evolutionary graph theory and even genetic algorithms. And we can, it was some grad students of mine about 11, 12 years ago, we started um, building um, simulations just to see what the evolutionary games would show. Um, we could have creatures that saw reality as it is. Well, we played God, we created these worlds, we put resources in them, we could 
create creatures with sensory systems that saw all of reality or none of reality and, and were just tuned to the fitness payoffs. And we could see what happened. And what happened um, was, was striking that organisms that, that saw reality as it is never outcompeted um, organisms of equal complexity that saw none of reality and were just tuned to the fitness payoffs. And hmm. so then I, so that was, you know, I suspected that was true, but in the, and that's why I started doing this research. I, I had some intuitions about, you know, maybe it would be take, just take too much time and energy to see the truth. But it turned out it was deeper than that. That was true. That was, that was one reason why the creatures that saw reality could not compete. But the simulations revealed something deeper, that, that, that the fitness payoffs that govern evolution themselves contain no information about the truth. They completely erase any information about the structure of objective reality. And that was the deeper reason that I didn't expect going into it. And that's why we do these simulations, right? We, we get surprised. And so then I went to a mathematician and said, you know, I got these simulations. It looks like uh, it's, it's a, a theorem of evolution. Um, can we prove this theorem? And of course, I'm, I'm not a mathematician. I, I know some mathematics, but I'm not a mathematician. Mm -hmm. So I worked with Chaitan Prakash and, and Chaitan proved uh, a couple theorems. And the, the, the bottom line is this, uh, the probability is zero that evolution will shape any sensory system of any creature to report truths about the structure of an objective reality. And, and you might say, how in the world could you prove something? Wouldn't you have to know what objective reality is before you could prove that we don't see it? And the answer is no, that's the power of mathematics. We can prove that whatever the structure of the world might be, we don't see it. And so that's, that's mm -hmm. the stunning result from evolution by natural selection. So <clears throat> now that also raises a couple other big questions, which is, well, doesn't evolution by natural selection itself assume um, physical objects like DNA and, and organisms and so forth. And, and it, 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 the standard way of thinking about it does. Evolutionary game theory, the power of that is it takes the mathematical structure of evolutionary theory, abstracts that structure away from all these contingent assumptions about DNA and genes and, and bodies and so forth. It says, just look at the logic of the evolutionary games. And that logic then contradicts some of the other assumptions that we've made that, that, that objects in space and time are real, like, like DNA. So that's the power of science. We can use the, the evolutionary, the algorithmic core of evolutionary theory to actually show that some of our peripheral assumptions about evolution are, are indeed false. They contradict the core of the theory. And, and one other objection that people often raise is to say, well, <clears throat> you're using natural selection. Evolutionary game theory is about natural selection, but, but biologists debate heavily whether natural selection is a very important part of evolution. There's genetic drift. There's, there's all sorts of other aspects to evolution. Linkage, pleiotropy, there's the constraints due to the fact that we're made out of certain chemicals. Um, so you're focusing on some perhaps trivial part of evolutionary theory. And so we shouldn't uh, really take your result too seriously. And <clears throat> the reason that I've focused on natural selection is, is quite simply that the argument that people give for why we've, been, why we've evolved sensory systems that show us aspects of the truth is a fitness argument. They say that seeing the truth 
at least some aspects of the true structure of objective reality, makes you more fit. That's a selection argument. It's, mm -hmm. And so that's why I went, I took evolutionary game theory because that is the algorithmic core that focuses just on the natural selection aspect. And if you think about it, natural selection is the only aspect of the theory that really makes sense here. No one argues that um, you know, genetic drift will make you see the truth. It, it couldn't possibly do that. The same thing with linkage and pleiotropy. No one argues that linkage and pleiotropy will make you see the truth. The argument is always that selection pressures will make you see the truth. Well, what we've shown, what, what Chaitan proved, what my students showed in their simulations is that is false. Selection does not make you see the truth. In fact, with probability one, it hides the truth. <clears throat> yeah, that all seems so counterintuitive. Yep. <laughs> It's hard to it's hard to wrap a brain around this. Been uh, holding on to these assumptions about evolution all this time. That, that's right, and and that's the the power of, of science. And and what we do in science is our our best scientific theories, um, because they're expressed in mathematics, they can surprise us. And this happens over and over again. So you know when Einstein wrote down I mean, his theory of general relativity, he had the idea in 1907. If you're in a Free-falling elevator, you would be weightless. That was the big idea. It took him eight years, and he's Einstein. It took him eight yeah. years to turn that idea into a single line, an equation that captures that idea, namely the, the theory of general relativity, a beautiful single line equation. Well, so it took him eight years to do it, and then the equation came back with surprises for Einstein that he didn't like. It said, the universe mm. is not static. It's either expanding or contracting. Einstein hated that. And it said also, there are things called black holes that, that, you know, that, that we end up calling black holes. And Einstein really hated that. He disbelieved that for decades. Well, that's what happens. Even if you're Einstein and you're the genius that made the theory, the theory comes back and slaps <laughs> you with counterintuitive things. And that's why we do science. And that's why we want to do mathematically rigorous theories, even in, in, in other domains where, where, we have, where we have these interesting ideas, we shouldn't be happy just to sit around with these ideas. We should try to make them rigorous, make them precise, because then and only then can they come back and slap us in the face with new implications that we never would have imagined. And when you had these, came out, saw the results of this and your friend, you know, confirmed a math, with mathematics, were you confused? Were you surprised? Did you have a similar reaction to Einstein? It's like, wow, this is really not what I was expecting. Or did you go into it with a, some expectation that this might come out the way it did? I went into it with the expectation that, that it would come out this way, but, but for almost trivial, my reasons were, were not wrong, but they were trivial. My reasons were I thought it would be, it would be just too, um, it would take too much time and too much energy. The energy costs would be too much. I, it, but it never occurred to me until, and it was only after my graduate students um, had been doing simulations, we were looking at them. And something that one of my graduate students pointed out to me, Brian Marion pointed out some feature of this that opened my eyes to the fact that it was a much, much deeper thing that was going on here. It was that the fitness payoffs themselves erase almost surely erase all information about the world structure. And since we're tuned to fitness payoffs, we can't be tuned to the world structure because there's no information about the world structure and the payoffs. So even if you made seeing the truth free, 
costing no time and no energy, we still couldn't see it. And that, that's, so that was a surprise to me. Um, absolutely. But, but so I got the result I expected, but I learned something far more deep about evolutionary theory in the process. And that's the, the fitness aspect of it. Yeah, that the fitness payoffs the that payoffs. govern evolution erase the world structure almost surely. And can you can you share an example of that? Uh, something to under, help me understand what that really like. What is a fitness payoff, and how how am I as a human or as some animal out there getting the fitness payoff through this process as opposed to sure, you know, sure, reality. So, reality. Okay. The example I'll have to give, though, of course, is going to use everyday things like, you know, like I'll use, say, oxygen, right? So mm -hmm. I'm going to assume for sake of argument that, that space and time and oxygen exist, um, even okay. though my theory here says we have yeah. to think deeper than that. But, but just to make the example, so think about oxygen and, and the, the concentration of oxygen in the atmosphere can go from 0% to 100%, right? So mm -hmm. that's what we call a, a total order. Zero is less than 1%, less than 2%, 3%. There's a total order of all these percentages up to 100%, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a less than relationship. We call that a total order. Now, suppose that um, you're a creature that only has two colors that you can see, say green and red. That's all you can see. And suppose that you were trying to see as much about the true amount of oxygen, the concentration of oxygen as you could. Well, then you might use green, you, you might have evolved a sensory system in which um, say green means 50% 50, 50 oxygen to 100% oxygen, right? So it means a lot of oxygen, whereas red means zero to 50%, right? That means not very much. That way, okay. you know, red is less than green in, in your sensory system. And that corresponds to red, you know, th that, that there's, you know, in the real world, there's less oxygen than, uh, when you see things red, so and more oxygen when you see things green. So in, in that sense, your your perception of red and green is telling you as much truth as it could about the total order, the amount of oxygen. Okay, mm -hmm. but but now we know that um, for for our survival, um, there's a very narrow range of of oxygen concentrations that will keep us alive, right? So from zero percent to you know what, what something like seventeen percent. I mean. Um, you're not going to make it from 17 to 22 or something like that. You'll make it. There's a, there's a sweet spot where you feel the best, but then beyond 22 or 23%, then once again, you have too much oxygen and it can also kill you. Right? So there's mm. this narrow, narrow range of oxygen concentrations that will keep you alive and the rest will kill you. That's the, so that I'm just described a fitness payoff function, right? So yeah. the fitness payoff is what I'm telling you is that from zero to say 17%, and don't take these numbers, I mean, I'm, I'm off by a few percent probably, but okay. zero to 17% uh, will kill you and 23 to 100% will kill you, but 17 to 23 in that range, you'll stay alive. Right. So, so that's the way fitness payoffs go, right? There, there are these really interesting, complicated functions. So now suppose that I want to use my red and green perception, not to tell me how much oxygen there is, but just to tell me if I'm going to live or not. Right. Do I need to move to something? Am I in a place where if I keep breathing here, I'm gonna die? So for that, you would want to map zero to 17, 
and then also like 23 to 100, all the, all the oxygen concentrations that will kill you, let's map those onto red. And let's take this narrow window of 17 to 23, let's map that onto green, right? So now yeah. if I see green, um, I know that I'm going to be safe. If I see red, I actually don't know what the oxygen concentration is. I don't know anything about the truth. All I know, I mean, it could be 0%, it could be 100%, it could be 15%, it could be 70%. I just don't know. And frankly, I don't care. All I know is that if it's red, I better change. I, I better get down in elevation, for example. I'm, I'm, I'm up too high. I'm at the top of Mount Everest. I need to get back down or something like that. So, so that's the, the, the big idea that evolution, so that seeing the truth and seeing fitness are not the same thing. And if you're tuned to see the truth, then what we proved is that almost surely, and that, that means with probability one. So mm -hmm. when I say almost surely, it's actually a technical mathematical term. It means with probability one. Almost surely, seeing the truth will not be seeing the fitness payoffs. And seeing fitness payoffs will not be seeing the truth. So that's, that's, so that's an intuition about fitness payoffs. And why, in the case of oxygen, the fitness payoffs, seeing the fitness payoffs is completely different than seeing the truth. And the fitness payoffs are what help us survive. Absolutely. Now, no evolutionary biologist would argue against that, right? It's, it's, I mean, of course, our sensory systems are tuned to the fitness payoffs. We had just assumed that the fitness payoffs themselves were also tuned to the truth. And that's the part that's wrong. So how does this tie into human consciousness. Now, one of the things I found fascinating in your book is obviously you're, it, it's almost like a movie, Th these uh, letters you exchanged with Dr. Crick, right. you know, and, and going back and forth, that, that was really just uh, fascinating, you know, in the world of, of consciousness. And I know one of the concepts you, you and he discussed were, quote, the thing in itself right. versus, quote, the idea of the thing, you know, which is, I guess, our perception versus what the reality is. And how does that difference and how does, you know, what you guys discussed relate this concept of, of fitness and perception to our experience of, of consciousness? And does that in your, maybe I'm asking too many questions in one, but in your mind, does that get to the heart of the hard question of consciousness? Absolutely. So, so one reason I've been, as you know, very interested in consciousness for, yes. for quite a while. And so was Francis. We had exchanged those letters back in the early mid 1990s. And so this has been a long-term interest and it was long-term interest for, for Francis as well. And the framework that Francis was using and that I would say 99% of my colleagues who study consciousness are using is the idea that physical objects like neurons um, are part of objective reality, that they exist, that they have their properties and they have causal properties. And if we're going to understand consciousness, we need to understand first how neurons and other physical systems, maybe microtubules within neurons and so forth, <laughs> how these physical systems work, how they interact, how systems of neurons work. And then we'll be able to eventually figure out how they create consciousness by some of their maybe global properties of their interactions or, or quantum properties of their microtubules and so forth. But the big assumption here 
is that physical objects in space and time, like neurons, like rocks, are a true description of fundamental reality. And when we're looking for neurons to create consciousness, we're assuming that neurons are real, that they really exist even when they're not perceived, <laughs> that they have causal properties. And I decided to, to check that assumption using evolutionary theory. Is it true, according to evolutionary theory, that space and time and what we call physical objects um, are, we, we can rely on our perceptions of when I look in a microscope and I see neurons to say, yep, that means that there really are neurons and we should build a theory of consciousness starting with neurons. And that was what I was testing with the theory of evolution. And it turns mm -hmm. out evolution says absolutely not. Um, you should not take at face value what you're seeing. When you see neurons in microscopes, um, you're seeing uh, a description of fitness payoffs. You're not seeing the structure of objective reality. And you're certainly not seeing something that has causal powers. And that I was also sort of supported in that um, by physics. You might be surprised, but, mm -hmm. but in physics, we can ask the technical question, is space time fundamental? And, and it turns out the answer is no. Uh, and this is, it comes as, come as a shock to the physicists, but it, and it comes as a shock to all of us. <laughs> but, but physics, at least since Newton, has been about what happens in space and time, right? You know, how things change in space as time evolves, as time progresses. That's what physics has been about. But it turns out there are very, very clear, basic arguments from physics that show that space-time, and therefore its contents, objects in space-time, cannot be fundamental. And I'll just give you a couple of the arguments very, very quickly. Um, yeah. and the reason is that they, they line up with what evolutionary theory is saying. So, so the argument is, is a couple arguments. The simplest one, um, not quite the deepest, but a simple one is that if I try to measure something at smaller and smaller scales, like um, you know uh, the position of an electron or something like that, well, to, to go to smaller and smaller scales, I need to use light with a finer and finer wavelength, a smaller and smaller wavelength, right? Mm -hmm. you, and, or as we would say, a higher and higher frequency. Well, as you increase the frequency of light, its energy goes up. Right? So because higher, higher energies are associated with higher frequencies. So the smaller you're probing to find the position of the electron or some property of the electron, um, then the higher the energy you need. Well, it turns out when you go to a small enough scale, the energy involved is so great in such a small region that you create a black hole and you destroy the very thing that you're trying to observe. Hmm. And, and, and so it turns out that the very notion of space-time itself ceases to make any sense. And if you, and that's the, that roughly at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters or 10 to the minus 43 seconds. It, it's not that there are pixels of space-time, it's that's, that the very concept of space-time completely unravels. It has no operational meaning at all. And in physics, we'll, when we find something that happens like that, when we say that when we find that you cannot talk about something um, with absolute precision, like for example, in quantum theory, you can't talk about the position and the momentum at the same time with our, you can talk about position, right. 
or you can talk about momentum, but you, you're not allowed to talk about both with, with arbitrary position. And, and that tells you that, that the, the deep theory in quantum theory is not, the, the wrong variables are position and momentum. It's something, it's something deeper. We have to change our theory. So we have to look at what we can measure precisely. And, we, and, and the, the fact is that the thing that's approximate here is space-time itself. Space-time itself is only approximate. And then a deeper, a, a, a deeper reason for this comes from quantum theory itself. So if you are trying to measure something like uh, a coupling strength of, of the electron um, to very, very high precision, you know, hundreds of, of or 10 to the 100 um, decimal places. Well, in quantum theory, you, if you're going to make a measurement of, say, you know, the coupling strength of the electron, um, you also have to have an apparatus. And because the apparatus itself also is subject to the, the uncertainty principle of, of, of quantum theory, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, to get an accurate um, measurement, you need to have more and more degrees of freedom in the apparatus. And so you need to get a bigger and bigger apparatus to get more and more precision. And once again, if you if you have your apparatus and this and the electron in any room, say you know a hundred meter by hundred meter by hundred meter room, and you're trying to make a, a, a measurement, at some point the apparatus, as you try to get more and more precise, the apparatus will collapse the entire room into a black hole. Hmm. And, and and in this case, it's it could be that you're trying to measure something large. So maybe it's not just the property of the electron, maybe it's some macroscopic property. So this really has nothing to do with trying to just measure stuff that's small. It, this, the quantum one is more, more fundamental. It's saying that the very notion of observation itself, even if you're measuring something big, um, at, at some point to get precise observations, uh, there are, you're gonna create a black hole in any local region of space. And so what this means, so this is the bottom line. Quantum theory, when you put it together with gravity, tells us very, very straightforwardly, there are no local observables in space-time, none, absolutely none. So everything that we see in space-time, including space-time itself, is not fundamental. It's only an approximate to something deeper. And so what, what this is really interesting because physics has been about what happens in space and time. And now space-time itself is the approximate concept and there are no local observables in space-time. And so it's not clear what physics is about. And, and, and physicists will actually say that. I mean, Nima Arkani Hamed, a physicist at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton has said flat out, it's not really clear what physics is about because physics <laughs> was supposed to be about what happens in space and time. And, and of course the, the young generation, including Nima himself, they're, they're not worried about this. This is fabulous. Right. This is the, right. the young, the younger generation always wants to push forward. And 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 if space time has been what physicists have been studying for four hundred years, and that's wrong, fabulous. It's time to to go to the next level and get the next theory. So, of course, what we know about physics in space time will constrain what deeper theories we we come up with. Right. So it's not like everything we've done is nonsense. Absolutely mm -hmm. not. To the contrary, everything that we've done is an incredible guide to try to go beyond space-time and find deeper structures there. So, so from my point of view, what we find is that the three big pillars of modern science, the big successful theories, evolution by natural selection, quantum field theory, and Einstein's gravity, 
all of these three are telling us together the same thing. Space-time is doomed. And with it, physical objects like neurons, these are not fundamental reality. And so from my point of view now as a cognitive neuroscientist trying to understand consciousness, what, the way I look at it is all of my colleagues are still assuming essentially um, the view that, that everything's fine. Space-time of course is real. Physical objects are real. Neurons have causal powers. They're this, you know, electrons, protons, and neutrons. Those are the fundamental nature of reality. And we just need to start with that framework and then, you know, you know sort of reductionist framework and sort of build up um, to neural networks and then build up to consciousness. And what I'm saying is we need to listen to what our best theories are telling us. That framework, the entire framework is dead. Reductionism is dead. There are no local observables. We have to think about consciousness. Uh, our best theories are telling us, you know, general relativity, quantum field theory, and evolution and natural selection are telling us we have to up our game. It's much more complicated and much more interesting than what we thought. Because those theories are incompatible with each other. Well, aren't they in like uh, the, the relativity, Einstein's relativity, and I guess what they call the Copenhagen model of quantum mechanics, quantum physics, those, those actually... They haven't really found a, you know, that's why they're looking for the unified theory, right? Is right now those two are actually incompatible. Well, so, so of course, Einstein had the special and general theories. Mm -hmm. And, and what, what's interesting is that uh, it turns out that the, that when you bring the special theory of relativity together with quantum theory, the, the two, those two can be made compatible. Hmm. And it turns out when you do that, um, it, gives you a surprising result. It tells you that there are, that the only kinds of universes that are compatible with special relativity and quantum theory, unitarity, quantum theory, unitarity, are um, the menu of particles that you can have, have spin zero, half, one, three halves, and two. That's it. No other worlds are allowed. The spin two particle is unique and it's, it's called the graviton and it is um, Einstein's general theory of relativity. In other words, when you put special relativity together with quantum theory, the graviton actually gives you the Einstein field equation. So you, hmm. you don't need falling elevators. You don't need all that stuff. It, just special relativity and quantum theory together entail the, the long-term behavior of, of, of Einstein's theory. Um, the spin three halves particles are the supersymmetric particles, which, which haven't been found yet. The spin one particles are things like quarks and gluons and, and, you know, the spin half are things like fermions, like electrons and so forth. The spin zero was one that, uh, one example was the Higgs that was discovered, uh, you know, mm -hmm. years ago or so, 2012 or something like that, a spin zero particle. And, but that's it. So when you put quantum theory and special relativity together, you get this incredible unification. Those are the only particles that are out that are out. spin zero, half, one, three halves, and two. There's only one spin two particle. There are all, at most eight spin three halves particles. There are the various constraints on these particles. It's truly, truly stunning. Again, this is for the, the long-term behavior, um, long distance behavior of, of the particles. So the 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 problem of putting general relativity and quantum theory together 
is that you know, in some sense they've not been able to quote unquote quantize gravity in, in some way hmm. or to gravitize um, quantum theory. So there, so there absolutely, there's still some big, big open issues there. And there's you know, the, the big elephant in the room in physics is something called the cosmological constant problem that the, the, the best predictions that we have for the size of our universe from quantum field theory is that it should be rolled up in a tiny little ball at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters diameter or exploding uh, at doubling the size every 10 to the minus 43 seconds. And neither of those is true in our hmm. universe. And, and there is, it, there, you know, we're off by over a hundred orders of magnitude, like 120 orders of magnitude in the size of the universe. So there's, there's, <clears throat> it, it's, it's truly stunning, but, but what, what, what the physicists like um, Nima Arkani Hamed and others are, are taking from, from this is that space-time is doomed. It's not that quantum theory is wrong and, and special theory relativity is wrong. It's not, they're not saying that. Where they, where they can actually make predictions, the predictions will be true. They're, they're, they will be correct. Um, but at some point, they're only approximate notions to some deeper notion. And what Nima and other physicists are going after is um, a deeper notion, a, a deeper structure in which there is no notion of special relativity, no Lorentz invariance, no notion of um, quantum theory. There's, there are, there's no unitarity, there's no Hilbert spaces. There are these deeper structures and they, they're finding them. There's something called the amplitudehedron, associahedron, cosmological polytopes and so forth. And these structures couldn't care less about space-time, um, Hilbert spaces of quantum theory or, or you know, Lorentz and Bryce. They don't care about that. They're, they're, the symmetries that they enjoy are much, much deeper. But on certain faces of these objects, you get um, what looks like space-time emerging and particles uh, colliding and so forth. And you can actually predict scattering probability, scattering amplitudes like you'd measure at the Large Hadron Collider, you can actually predict these from certain volumetric properties of these deeper structures that don't care about space-time. And, and the, the picture that's emerging is that space-time is some flat little projection, um, a trivializing, a simplifying projection of a much deeper realm that couldn't care less about space-time and quantum theory and special relativity. And so that's really, so, so this is where physics is right now. And, and so, so for me, when, I, when my colleagues are, are just assuming that everything is fine, you know, that, that space-time is fundamental, the particles are the fundamental nature of reality and, and they're the source of causal structures and we should build up a theory of conscience from that. Uh, you know, it's just, they're, they're working with the old model and that, that model is gone. Um, and we need to be thinking about the problem of consciousness and its relationship to physical objects like the brain in a fundamentally new way, because the physicists are telling, it, telling us the old way is just merely an approximation to a much deeper and more profound way of thinking about things. And you've got a way of turning that upside down, right? You've, you've got this notion of consciousness being mm -hmm. fundamental and, and tied to uh, this notion of conscious agents that, that you described, is that correct? That's right. So, so that's why I'm trying to, to tackle this in a completely new way, right? The, the, the old way, the reductionist way can't work. Reductionism, physics tells us reductionism is dead. It's false. It is just not true. There are no local observables. 
So they'll hope to start with the microphysical properties and build up, build up, build up and get consciousness is just, is just hopeless. So, so what I'm going after then is to say, well, if um, the physicists don't know what's deeper than space-time, but, but, but they know that space-time itself can't be fundamental. Um, and I'm still, I'm trying to understand how consciousness is related to the brain. I'm very much interested in, in that, that problem. How, how is consciousness related to the physical world, to space and time and to the brain? Yeah. Uh, if I can't start with space and time and physical stuff and boot up consciousness, well, let's try the other way. Can I start with a model, a mathematical model of consciousness and boot up space and time, right? We know the physicists are telling us we have to boot up space and time anyway, right? They're, they're, that's what they're doing. The, the avant-garde in physics right now, like Nima or Kanehamed, are trying to boot up space and time from something more fundamental. They're, they're discovering the amplitudehedron and sociohedron and so forth. So, so in that same spirit, I'm saying, can I start with a mathematical model of consciousness and boot up the physical world, including brains? And the, the particular way I'm going after it is, is to say, what if I could not boot up space-time directly? What if I could start with a theory of conscious agents, your consciousness, I call it conscious agents. Um, mm -hmm. And what if I could boot up from that the amplitudehedra? the associahedra, the cosmological polytopes that the physicists are finding that are beyond space-time. If, if I could show just, all I would need to do is to show how some aspect of the dynamics of consciousness gives rise to the structures that the physicists are finding, then the physicists can take me the rest of the way, right? They're already telling me how to go from the associahedra and the amplitudehedra to give me what looks like, you know, particles scattering at the Large Hadron Collider in space-time. So I don't need to do that. The physicists have already done that. Thank you very much. So I just need to connect with the amplitudehedra and sociohedra and so forth. So, so the, here's the big idea. The, the dynamics of consciousness that I'm working on is, is like a social network dynamics, right? A bunch of agents interacting. It's like a vast social network like Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so you can talk about this, the, the dynamics like uh, the Twitterverse and you know, the dynamics that's going on there. You can look, look at that dynamics. It's a, Mathematically, it's a dynamics on graphs or, or higher geometric objects called simplices, dynamics on simplices. Um, so you can look at that dynamics, and that's what I'm in the middle of, you know, there's math everywhere, so I got to learn math. I mean, it's not my strong suite, but you just have to do it. So I'm spending all my time learning all this math. Um, but the idea would be the step-by-step -step dynamics of the Twitterverse is really complicated, right? There's tens of millions of users, billions of tweets. I mean, there's no way that you could ever look at each Twitter account and read everything, every Twitter, yeah. you know, every tweet. There's no way to see all, all the Twitter feeds and so forth. So what do we do when we have overwhelming social data? What we do is we build visualization tools, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe a, a virtual reality headset you can put on that where you can sort of visualize what's happening in New York versus what's happening in California or what's happening in all of Europe versus what's happening in New Zealand. And, and so you can zoom in, zoom out. Um, but but in, in every case, what you're doing is data compressing all this information to get the gist. What is the gist that, so they don't have to, you know, see every single Twitter, uh, you know, tweet. I, I just need to see, you know, the, what's trending and, and so forth. So we, we data compress by looking at the long-term behavior to, to get the gist. Technically, it's sort of what I would say, looking at the 
the long-term behavior, the asymptotic behavior. And so that's my big idea is that the long-term, the asymptotic behavior of these social networks of conscious agents will give rise to what the physicists are finding, which is the amplitude heater, the sociohedra, and so forth. So the reason why physics never sees consciousness is because they're not looking directly at consciousness. They're only looking at the long-term trends, the, the long-term behavior. It's much like if you're, um, suppose you, you know, the freeway is, you know, this is something that's reasonable down here in, you know, near LA where I live, right? There's freeways all over the place and mm-hmm. traffic jams and so forth. You know, if you're in a car, right, you, you, you know that every other car has some conscious person you know, hitting the gas, hitting the brake, tw- turning the steering wheel, sweating, what, playing the radio and so forth. There are a lot of, bunch of conscious people driving the cars. But now suppose you um, zoom way up, you get up in a helicopter and you're looking just down from a mile up. Now you can just see the, the freeways as like arteries and all the cars are little dots. And you can just look at it like little particles flowing. And you can see, oh, there, well, there's a traffic jam because things are backed up. You can just look, look at it like fluid flow, and you can write down physics equations for fluid flow. And, and you don't see the consciousness. You don't see each individual driver turning their wheel and pressing the brake and so forth. You just see particles moving. And so that's, that, that's the idea. The reason why physics never sees consciousness is because it's necessarily only looking at the asymptotic, the long-term behavior of this dynamical interaction of consciousnesses. So we can build, so, so the idea would be, we can build a model of consciousness in which we understand in principle how each interaction works. And then as we study that and then say, well, what's the long-term behavior? Then we will get the amplitudehedra and so forth coming out of that. And then the physicist will tell us how then we can use spa- get space-time as an even simpler um, representation of that. And hmm. the idea would then be that space-time and physical objects just is a visualization tool. That's what evolution gave us from the, from the evolutionary point of view. We have this visualization tool that um, um, only looks at the long-term trends of the dynamics of consciousness um, and gives us that in a simple format, space and time and, and nice little eye candy that we call physical objects with their shapes and colors and motions. So none of space and time and physical objects has ever been the truth. It was just our little headset of visualization tool. And we've made the rookie mistake of, of taking our headset for the truth. And it, and it really evolves. So we've got uh, these conscious agents networking together arise out of that is the, the space time and the physics and arise from that is what we perceive to be these these uh, real objects in front of us. That's right. That that's exactly right. So so this would be the the, the big picture of it. So that what really exists is this vast social network of conscious agents. But because it's so overwhelming, you know, it's so big. Each agent needs to have some kind of visualization tool to sort of allow it to sort of interact and understand this network that it's interacting with. And that's what space and time and physical objects are. It's just a particular headset that certain agents use. It's probably not the only one. That, that's probably, it's, it's one of uh, a countless variety of different uh, visualization tools that various agents use. Space time mm-hmm. is just one, one particular little headset. It's not the truth. It's just a visualization tool. And so what is a conscious agent? I mean, is that, uh, am, am I a conscious agent or am I a network of conscious agents? Are you and I together part of a larger network of conscious agents? What, what is actually a conscious agent? Right. So, 
so the, the mathematical model that I'm working on right now, it, it would entail that, that you are a conscious agent, but you're also a network of conscious agents, both. And what's interesting is that the, the mathematical model entails that when, when conscious agents interact, they can form new emergent conscious agents. So it's, and to just give you a feeling for what I could possibly mean by that, um, I'll, I'll turn to just a little interesting neuroscience. So it turns out that, that some of us, <clears throat> you know, a small fraction of us, unfortunately, have epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And, and epilepsy, uh, epileptic seizures are, are caused by usually some part of the brain. <clears throat> now, by the way, when I use cause and brain and so forth, you understand that I'm now speaking colloquially <laughs> um, in a way that we everybody will understand. But that's yep. space, time, and brains don't really exist when they're not perceived. But, but right. nevertheless... But the way the, is, uh, uh, I'm using the language of the interface in a way that people can understand. So, so the idea is that there's an aspect of a bit of the brain where there's some, it's a, called an epileptic focus where certain you know, random wrong kinds of, of, of brain activity is, is generated and it can spread throughout the entire brain and, and you get an electrical storm in your brain. And if it's, you know, if it's bad enough, you go unconscious, you fall down, you bite your tongue, your body shakes because the motor cortex is being randomly triggered and so forth. And, and in very severe cases, it's been the case that drugs that were available couldn't control it. And so in, in, in the most severe cases, what they did um, was a radical surgery that what they, they, Joe Bogan, who actually I, I had the pleasure of knowing, we met many, many times to discuss consciousness, um, in fact, with Francis Crick hmm. and others. Um, what, what they did was the following. They, it was a radical surgery, um, but it was based on the fact that you have a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. Your left hemisphere, the, the, the cortex has about 43 billion neurons, so does the right. And, but they're connected by this small band of fibers called the corpus callosum, which has only 200 to 225 million uh, axons or you know, neural fibers going through it. So the idea was, um, suppose you have an epileptic focus in your right hemisphere um, that's causing the problem. If we could go in and cut the corpus callosum, then the, the electrical activity in the right hemisphere couldn't get across to the left hemisphere because you cut the band of fibers, this corpus callosum, that was conducting the bad signals across. So in a couple dozen cases, they did this. They, you know, they cut the corpus callosum and it was a clinical success. It really worked. Um, In the number of seizures dropped dramatically and their severity dropped off dramatically. It was a clinical success. And Hmm. it was was a real pleasure to to actually know Joe Bogan, the guy who actually did many of these surgeries. Yeah, I bet, I bet. Yeah, he was a really interesting guy. Uh, but when they did, when Roger Sperry at Caltech and others, um, but Roger Sperry won the Nobel Prize for this work, he, he started testing, is there anything different about these people? And, and, and it turns out when you do careful tests, there, there are and, and things that, that are different about these people. And it turns out, uh, and we can go into it if you want to in detail, but I'll just tell you the results. And if people want to know how in the world we got the results, then we can go into it. But, okay. but it turns out you can actually talk to the left hemisphere by itself and not the right. And you can talk to the right hemisphere and not to the, and not to the left. And it turns out that they have, in general, different personalities. In one guy, the left hemisphere 
wanted to be a draftsman. He wanted to sit at a desk job all his life. The right hemisphere wanted to be an automobile racer. In one person, the left hemisphere um, believed in God, and the right hemisphere was an atheist. Hmm. And they, the right hemisphere controls the left hand, the left hemisphere controls the right hand. In some cases, the left and right hand start fighting each other, and they, 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 the person gets an internal fights because the two hemispheres want different things. In other words, when we, when we do tests on these people, we find two we, that we can isolate so that the right hemisphere has a conscious experience that the left hemisphere is not having. And the left hemisphere can have a conscious experience that the right hemisphere is not having. And they have different personalities, different likes and dislikes, and even different theological views. And so the idea is that, yeah, you are one person, you are one conscious agent, but you are also two conscious agents. And those two conscious agents may have utterly different personalities, even different religious views and different goals in life. And that, you know, that could explain why some of us are of divided mind. What do I want to do on Friday night? Do I want to go to a party or do I want to study? Or, you know, what, we, we find that we might have to negotiate with ourselves. Well, you may really be negotiating with two separate conscious agents that have very different personalities. And my theory says that that goes all the way down that it's not just two, but that you're not just you know, one agent or two agents, that there's a whole lattice of conscious agents. And, and that to really understand this theory, we have to understand how, how agents interact and how new agents in a non-reductive way emerge from that interaction. You know, and I, and I hear this and I keep wanting to ask you reality-based questions that I don't think make sense in the context anymore. <laughs> you know, as I keep wanting to know, okay, so that's what you're saying. Dr. Hoffman, is, is like they have this lattice of consciousness. You know, where is that then? Tell me, is that in my amygdala? Is that in my prefrontal cortex? Is that in my neuron? You know, and that's just really not, that's not even the right question anymore. Right. It, it actually goes the, the other way. The, the yeah. brain itself is in your consciousness. It's just one of the symbols that you create. Right. So, the, so neurons are symbols that you create when you look inside skulls. Yeah. Neur so strictly speaking, right now, um, I have no brain. Strictly speaking, if someone looked, of course, with a fMRI scanner or, you know, or, or PET scanner or something like that, they would see neural activity in, in the scan. Or they, if they did an MRI, they would, they would see neural structures and so forth. But, but you see it when you create it, and it exists when you, when you, when you create it, but it doesn't exist when you, when you don't. Space-time itself is not fundamental. Hmm. We think of space, and so that's the big one. I think well, I should focus on the big one here. Right? The big story that we've all been raised on is that space-time is the big pre-existing stage on which the drama of the universe plays out. It began 13.8 billion years ago at the Big Bang. Who knows where it's going to go? It might expand forever. That's what it's looking like right now, but it may end in a big crunch. Uh, if we tunnel from our current... Uh, um, vacuum state to a lower energy vacuum state, we could go into a big crunch. Um, but but the idea is that the standard view is that space-time is fundamental reality. It's been around for 13.8 billion years. Life came along much, much later, you know, maybe hundreds of millions or billions of years later, and then consciousness came after that. And, and us, you know, we're like little bit players that have come on in just the last few seconds onto this big, vast stage of space-time, and we're, we're trivial latecomers on the stage. So that's the standard view. And I'm saying that and physics is saying 
that's wrong. Space-time is not fundamental. I'm turning it around to saying, we're not bit players on the pre-existing stage of space-time. We are the authors of space-time. We invent it. It's a data structure that we use. So we are creating space-time on the fly. And, and, so, and then everything that's inside space-time, we're creating on the fly as well. When you look inside a brain, you create you know, the left and right hemisphere. You create the occipital lobe. You create the neurons that you're seeing. You, that's what you, what you create. Now, we create that in the same way that a visualization tool creates the visualization of whatever it's you know, visualizing. So I have a visualization tool that's, that's telling me what's trending in New York. Well, whatever is trending in New York, that, that is the, in this analogy, that is the reality. And my visualization tool um, creates a token on the fly, which sort of communicates that reality to me. But of course, my tool, my, my icon in my, my headset is, is just my tool. It's just not the reality. It's just my, my visualization tool. And it's the same thing with, with neurons. Um, and so you're saying, and I think, I think this is also in your conversations with, uh, with Francis Crick, but it's, I think it's a big part of your book and, and some of your talks that we are reconstructing what we are perceiving. Right. And that's, that's where we have this, this Necker cube and we have the 3D cubes, even on the cover of your book, you know, you've got the, the cube within the discs where you can see the cube, but it's actually not there, right? And that's right. And so exactly, just like in all the various visual illusions that, that the psychologists have come up with, you, you realize, oh, well, of course, you know, that, you know, the colors that I'm seeing there are, are created by me or the three-dimensional shapes that I'm seeing are created by me, of course. Um, I'm saying that that's true all the time, that all hmm. 3D shapes that you see, all objects, all of that is, is something that is just your creation all the time. Um, we, we thought that some of the time we're, we're fooled, but most of the time we're seeing the truth, um, and that most of the time what we see is a reconstruction of reality. And I'm saying, no, no, it's just... It's literally like a virtual reality headset. It's, it's like we're playing a virtual reality game, like you know Grand Theft Auto, but a, v, a VR version of Grand Theft Auto. When I look and see the steering wheel in the, in the VR game, well, I'm, that's only because I'm looking in a particular direction. My headset is spraying some photons, and I'm creating the 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 steering wheel that I see. If I turn my head to the left, now I don't see the steering wheel. Now I'm looking over at a green Ferrari. So now I'm creating a green Ferrari. There is no real green Ferrari, right? This, this, this is just a virtual reality game. So there's no real green Ferrari, but I'm creating it and I'm no longer creating the steering wheel. Now I turn back over, now I'm creating the steering wheel and I get rid of the green Ferrari. So, so we, we create objects on the fly when we need them and we garbage collect them. We, get, we delete them when we don't need hmm. them. So I create neurons when I look inside of a brain and then I delete them when I look away. There are no such things as neurons when, when I don't look. And that was what Francis and I, Francis Crick and I were, were talking about back in the early mid nineties was this relationship between our perceptions and, and reality. I was, I mean, I was pressing Francis because he, he, he was a, you know, a, a physicalist and, and mm-hmm. a reductionist and, and took neurons to be fundamental reality. And, and I, I was trying to press him on, on the idea that maybe we needed to step away from that physicalist reductionist point of view and adopt more of this kind of, um, you know, it, space-time is just a headset. It's just a, a visualization tool. And so out of that, is that part of the, and maybe you've already explained this and I didn't catch it, but is that part of the interface theory of perception? Right. 
Absolutely. The interface theory of perception is basically saying, um, just say from an evolutionary point of view, what evolution gave us, you know, our sensory systems or any creature's sensory systems, evolution could only give you a visualization tool, not a window on reality. It's just giving you a, a user interface that, you know, yeah. like a virtual reality that lets you play the game, right? It, it, like in the Grand Theft Auto case, in, in that metaphor, the reality is a supercomputer with its voltages and magnetic fields and so forth. It's complicated. We use just a, you know, a, a VR game with, you know, a steering wheel and, you know, a red Ferrari, green Mustang and all this stuff as a way to interact with that reality, but it lets us play the game. So if I'm trying to win at a game of Grand Theft Auto, say we're racing or something like that, I'm trying to win. Well, um, I use the, the eye candy in my headset to try to win the game. The eye candy makes me do certain things that eventually toggle voltages inside the supercomputer. And that's what I'm really doing. I'm toggling voltages in the supercomputer, but I'm doing that whether or not I even believe in voltages. You know, I might not even know that that's what was going on yeah. and I would be successfully doing it. If, if on the other hand, uh, we said, okay, I'm going to have another guy, some geek that knows how to toggle the voltages, go in there and try to win a game of Grand Theft Auto, but all he can do is toggle voltages. Well, good luck. I think I'll still beat him because I ought to be toggling millions of voltages per second. Uh, and he couldn't do that. <laughs> he's he's going to have to, you know, toggle. Right. He's not, he's not going to be able to do it. So in, you can see that seeing the truth doesn't help you. It will actually get in the way of, of winning the game. And that's why evolution, you know, shaped us with sensory systems that completely hide objective reality. Um, but give us, eye candy that lets us act in ways that that you know interact with that reality to keep us alive so that's that's from within the evolutionary framework that i'm talking about ultimately i'm going to have to explain how evolutionary theory itself including evolution of natural selection is just a, a headset theory right this is just you know, evolution by natural selection is still just a headset theory it's not the deeper theory of dynamics in the universe. So the deeper dynamics would be, at least in the model I'm working on now, and of course I'm probably wrong, but, but you know, you got to be precise and, and go for it. So the model I'm working on now is to say, is this, this vast social network of conscious agents, it's got its own dynamics and, the own, and its own reason for this dynamics. But when you project that dynamics of consciousness into our space-time headset, then it looks like organisms competing with each other in an evolutionary framework. And we have evolution of a natural selection. That's what it looks like. But that's the evolutionary framework is not, it is perfectly fine within our headset. It's in fact, a wonderful tool within our headset, but it's just a, a shadow, a projection of this much richer dynamics outside of space-time. And then the same thing, if I understand it, is the sense that I know you don't like the word qualia. The, the sense, the phenomenal experience of consciousness, the qualia, is also really just seeing or feeling something it is like to be a bat or feeling the, what a, a red apple looks like. Um, that is all also just projections out of that fundamental consciousness. Right. Yeah, I tend not to use the word qualia simply because some of my, my colleagues in, in the philosophy of mind um, will they have some technical ideas about what qualia that they're, you know, they have certain strange yeah. properties and so forth. And so I just like to use the word conscious experience to, to avoid okay. um, those kinds of debates. 
Um, but but the idea would be that most of my colleagues in neuroscience who are working on consciousness try to get conscious experiences, like you know the taste of chocolate, something. Of, so I'm not talking about exotic things like you know self awareness and things like that, but just you know something simple that even a rat might have, you know, taste of cheese. Um, those kinds of qualia or con conscious experiences, they're trying to get them to. Um, somehow arise from neural activity or microtubule collapse or electromagnetic waves in the brain or something like that. <clears throat> and and I'm saying, you know, the physicists have already told us that that's just the wrong framework. I mean, it's just, you know, space-time isn't fundamental. There are no local observables. It's just the wrong framework. Um, so so you can't get qualia that way, and they, and they haven't yeah. been able to do it. Um, so I'm starting with a framework in which um, conscious experiences are part of the fundamental furniture of reality. So they don't come from a physical world. The physical world itself will be a visualization tool for, for these, this network of conscious agents that, and each agent has its own um, conscious experiences. Hmm. Okay. Um, I think you ruined, I have one last question before we get to the, the, the just the wrap up questions, but I think you ruined this question for me as I'm starting <laughs> to understand this, but um, these ideas, consciousness and the conscious agents and the projections and the understandings, the perceptions, how do non-ordinary states of consciousness play into that? Things like dreams, psychedelics, you know, anything that like in my, so my conscious agent, if I have a dream and I feel like it, you know, that's something real, I guess that that's all just something that is uh, that, that conscious experience coming out of the conscious agents that, that make up, my mind. And so right. if, if it, in, in, so a, a dream or a, a tab of LSD or psilocybin is, is, is just as unreal as anything else. And so that's all just really arising from the, the network of conscious agents within me. That, that's right. That um, you're not just one agent, you're a whole network of conscious agents. And, and there's, as we start to really study this as a scientific model, we should be able to understand more and more about how, these agents interact and how, you know, in dreams, cer certain kinds of uh, experiences that, that maybe quote you quote unquote um, weren't aware of that are inside of you um, get, get experienced, right? Certain repressions are, are let go. The notion of repression should be a very interesting one to understand in terms of these interacting dynamics of conscious agents. But I should also say that this theory of conscious agents, it, it basically is saying that, right. The, the range of conscious experiences that's available is boundless. Yeah. And all experiences that humans have ever had, even the most exotic experiences are trivial compared to um, the potential that's out there, that there are conscious agents, countless conscious agents, boundless conscious agents that I'm envisioning in this theory that have experiences utterly unlike anything we've ever had or could even imagine. If I ask you to even imagine just a single specific color that you've never seen before, right? nothing happens. Right? We, we can't even imagine one specific color that we've never seen before. And, and so our, our, our imaginations are extremely limited. So we have to sort of just go abstract on this and say, the mathematics is telling us that there are countless other kinds of conscious experiences that are of modalities. You know, we, we have, there's touch modality, visual, auditory, haptic, and so forth, and it's 
somatosensory, all these different modalities. I'm saying that there's countless modalities that we can't even conceive of right now, except as abstract possibilities that, that are the real experiential worlds of conscious agents out there. So it's, it's, it's um, the theory in my mind is suggesting that there's a countless variety of, of um, experiences out there that to us would seem utterly brand new. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you know about Andrew Gallimore. Um, he does studies, uh, you know, neuroscience and DMT and how DMT oh. actually takes you to a realm where you are seeing colors and beings and things that you never had conceived of before and believes that it's uh, not alien like little green aliens on Mars, but it's kind of an alien information that you're, that you're in, in talking to you. I don't know how to label it. Your consciousness, your, your, your perceived reality goes to. Right. And it would be very interesting to eventually try to ask as a technical question, um, could we have some kind of, if we develop this theory of conscious agents far enough along, can we um, make predictions or, or testable hypotheses about these DMT experiences and, and, and test the hypothesis that, you know, the, the, the guides, often these people will talk about that they have guides that they see repeatedly, the same guide. Mm-hmm. Um, comes back to them over and over and, and picks up where it left off before and takes them to new places in terms yeah. of their own mental and spiritual growth. Um, that is that really uh, some kind of other kind of agent that we're interacting with or, or, or not, that'll be really interesting to, to go after. Um, this is the kind of thing, I mean, as a scientist, uh, on the one hand, I don't want to reject things out of hand. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I want to be skeptical, of course, but I'm not going to reject things out of hand. Um, and on the other hand, I would like to um, take these the best ideas and try to see if there's some kind of mathematically rigorous theory that could explain them or debunk them. So that's, yeah. that's what I'm interested in doing. Excellent, excellent. Well, that, that is exciting. So what what have I not asked you? Is there anything I didn't I didn't ask you that you wanted to get out there? Oh well, the other the, the possibilities of this are endless. I'll just mention maybe just one one last one that I think. Um, is a surprising uh, outcome of this point of view. And that is the distinction we make between living and non-living things, hmm. right? We, we, have, we have a debate you now. So clearly humans are alive and, and probably you know, conscious. And uh, my cat is certainly alive and, and it, it probably is conscious. And, you know, we get down to, uh, uh, you know, an ant. Well, it's, it's certainly alive and who knows if it's conscious people would go and we get down to bacteria. Yeah. They're, they're definitely alive and people, debate whether they're conscious. A virus, uh, now it's not even clear if it's alive. And at some point, they'll get down to you know, like a, a quark or a proton. You know, surely that's not alive or a rock, that's not alive. Um, and, and so we, then we, but when people try to make the principal distinction between what's living and what's not living, it turns out to be very, very difficult. I mean, there's of course the thing, it, um, you know, they try to maintain their own life, some kind of homeostasis, they reproduce and so forth. But, but it, it, it in cases of virus and so forth, it gets really, really complicated and, and other borderline cases. And, and from my point of view, if space-time is not fundamental and physical objects are just icons in our interface, then this distinction, be- and, and what's really the nature of reality is just this network of conscious agents. Because consciousness is the, and what's, what was fundamental. Then what we have is a very, very different take on this point of view. I have space and time and objects are just my headset. It's my visualization tool by which I'm 
interacting with this vast network of consciousnesses. So it's consciousness is fundamental. Now, by its very nature, a headset, a visualization tool gives you a lot of insight into some things, but it, it, it erases most of the information. That's the whole point of a headset is that the, the thing out there is too complicated. So most of it has to be dumbed way, way down or right. even just ignored. That's, that's what we do. We, we, you know, we data compress, we ignore stuff. And then, you know, some of it we just plain delete. So what's happening is like when, with my headset, when I talk with a person face-to-face, -face, my icon is giving me quite a bit of information about the consciousness of the person. If they're smiling, I can guess that they're happy. If they, if their eyes dart to the left, I can know that they're probably attending someplace new that I, you know, that they weren't attending to before. So I can, I can figure out something about their consciousness from my, my headset with my cat icon. I'm getting much less information about the consciousness with my ant mm -hmm. icon, even less when you get down to, you know, a virus I mean, or, or a proton, I, I've, I've, I've given up now that doesn't mean that the thing I'm interacting with is unconscious. It just means that my headset, of course, has to give up at some point. That's what headsets are for. If, if, if I took the headset off, I would be overwhelmed by all the consciousnesses that I was interacting with. So, so the bottom line is this, the distinction between living and non-living is not fundamental. It's an artifact of the data format of our visualization tool, just that simple. Hmm. So this, this has profound consequences for a lot of big problems in science. This way of thinking completely changes how we think about the distinction between living and non-living. It, it really, and, and also I mean, the, the big lesson from this is don't take your headset at face value. A headset is just a headset. And we have to understand that what we're really doing is trying to reverse engineer our headset, reverse engineer what mm -hmm. it's, how it's projecting. So that's a completely new way of thinking about science. It's not about finding the true nature of space and time and, and, and physical objects. It's, it's understanding them, but then asking, this is just a data structure for something else. What is that something else? How does it project into our data structure? So all the real work is ahead. All the real fun is ahead. Science until now has essentially, I'd say 99% of science has just been a study of our headset. And that's great. It's a good warm-up. Mm -hmm. For the first time, science can can now step outside the headset. We have the tools. We you know, what we do is we we propose theories and then we make tests that we can make in our headset. So science can go on normally. Um, but but we're for the first time going to be using science to step outside of our headset, and that's going to be fun. That is going to be fun. I can't. I can't wait to see some of these studies and these models and the equations that come out of this. So I will definitely keep an eye on what you're up to. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So what what is next from you? What what are you excited about? What are you going to be working on? What's what's next for Dr. Hoffman? Well, what I'm working on right now, um, uh, believe it or not, and it it, it may take a, some several years of hard work. I'm having to learn um, all this physics I've been talking about. So. The, the amplitudehedron, sociohedron, and so forth. So mm -hmm. for someone who doesn't have a PhD in physics, it's, you know, you effectively have to go back and get yourself a PhD in physics. So mm -hmm. I'm studying, you know, Nima or Connie Hamed gave a, a class last fall, in fall of 2019 at Harvard. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the, the lectures are online and I am studying all of those lectures and, and studying quantum field theory. And I'm studying geometric algebra and I'm studying 
um, dynamics and graph, so graph theory. Uh, there's just tons and tons of mathematics. I'm working with a couple of mathematicians, Chetan Prakash is working with me, Manish Singh and, and, and others. Uh, so I got some good mathematical talent to, to help me because, you know, I can do math, but I'm definitely not gifted. You know, I'm not a mathematician. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm studying that. I'm studying current theories of consciousness. I'm, I'm, and then I'm, the big goal for me is to do what I mentioned earlier, to show how the asymptotic, the long-term dynamics of conscious agents can give rise to the amplitudehedra, sociohedra, and so forth, the structures that the physicists are finding. Yeah. In other words, I'm trying to reverse engineer our headset. I want to show the exact mathematical mapping between this network of conscious agents that I'm positing and what we see in space and time and physical objects. Everything we see in space and time and physical objects is some kind of visualization tool representation of a dynamics of consciousness. I want to get that absolutely mathematically precise. And once we do that, um, the technologies that are gonna come out of that will make everything that we've done so far seem like firecrackers. Um, we should be able to play with the very structure of space-time itself. The, it's it's going to yeah. be very, very different. I mean, like when, when Maxwell wrote down the equations of electrodynamics, Maxwell's equations, um, that opened up um, what we're doing right now. You and I are talking by Zoom. Who knows how many hundreds or thousands of miles apart we are, and who, and who cares? But the technology, the, once, we, once we got that mathematical model of what was going on, it opened up all sorts of technologies. Well, once we reverse engineer our interface and we understand how space and space-time are just data structures that we create, hmm. we'll be able to play with this. Um, the space travel could be a very, very different thing when we understand how to just play with space as a data structure. Um, so, so the technologies are going to be um, truly truly dramatic. But so, but right now my goal is to simply reverse engineer the interface. And my, my hope is that the, the discoveries that the physicists are making of the cosmological polytope and amplitudehedron and so forth are, are the halfway point that I can meet them there. That they, they've, they've stepped out of space time to these deeper structures like the you know, amplitudehedron. I can start with this, this dynamics of consciousness and show that the amplitudehedron comes out as just the asymptotic description of it. Mm -hmm. And then with that bridge, then we can go all the way from consciousness to our interface. And then we can start to see what technologies could come out of that. That will be really interesting. That will be super interesting. And I sure cannot wait for you to shine the light on that. Me too. Yeah. I'd like to find out yesterday. <laughs> yes, I know. You've got me feeling the same way. I'm not getting any younger here, Doc. So you got to get this done. Exactly. Yeah. Either. I got to keep doing it while I've still got neurons to do this stuff. So there you go. There you go. But you don't have any neurons. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. That's all right. Problem. Yes. Yes. That's all of our problem. Well, Dr. Hoffman, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to answer all these questions. And it sure gave me even more to think about. So I'm truly grateful for your time here with me today uh, and talking to me about uh, consciousness and reality. My pleasure. Thank you, Stuart. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash theconsciousnesspodcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. 
Thank you for listening.